Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we are discussing two short stories. The first is one, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omalas by Ursula Le Guin, and the second is Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling by Ted Chang. Uh, my name is Caroline, and I'm here with my father, Richie. Hello. And I'm actually, I'm actually not here with my father, Richie. We are social distancing um, and doing this over Google Hangouts. But I think that it's going to work pretty much the same as normal. Right, Dad? Yeah, I think so. This is kind of interesting to do it this way. Yeah. So hopefully the uh, sound quality doesn't suffer. Or might actually be better mm. than uh, normal. So we'll see. Uh, so today we're going to talk about, we're finishing up our dystopian, utopian series of looking at science fiction stories that fall into that category. And we are finishing up with two short stories, one by Ursula Le Guin, uh, which is the one, the ones who walk away from Omalas, and one by Ted Chang, Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling. I wanted to say that you were the one who picked the one who walked away from Omalas as the story, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I picked the Ted Chang story, Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling. Right, and so I've read Omalas before, and you haven't, right? Right. And then, did you read Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling before this? or you Yes, read I oh, read it okay. read before, of course, and then I read it again. Perfect. So so I think the way that we're going to structure this podcast is that we're going to start to, and talk about Omalas first, so the shorter story, um, go through that one, and then we'll talk about Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling, and then we'll kind of talk about them together. Because they're actually not that similar, <laughs> Right, uh, quite different, yes. Yeah, and um, I think we just wanted to do some short stories, and these were just kind of the ones we picked. So, uh, but we'll see. You know, they do both fall into this utopia dystopia kind of thing. Right. Uh, the thing I think we can talk about it later. But what I noticed about our previous books were mostly the dystopias were like politic politically oriented. So there was some kind of a government involvement in the story. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not Return from the Stars as much mm -hmm. right but these are quite different yes definitely definitely so and i think that's a really interesting way to think about utopias and dystopias is what you know what makes it a utopia or dystopia do you need big brother to be telling you that right. it is or can you know does society just kind of form that way sometimes so we'll start with the ones who walk away from omalas um did you did you do any research into this one just or... a little bit. There was a little bit in the introduction. Or actually, mm -hmm. there's like a post afterward of the story. So this was published in 1973. And Ursula Le Guin said that this is the story that she gets most letters about. Oh, really? Yeah. So she says everybody writes to her and, and wants to know what the story means. And, oh. and some people have objections to the way the story worked. And, and she basically said, look, I wrote the story. That's how it works. That's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I think, uh, I mean, I think it's, um, she probably would get a lot of letters about it because it's a story that's pretty good for uh, school-aged children, um, except for the bit in the middle about the orgy. But if you take that out, the story is right. very good for like middle school and high school kids. Well, she said uh, that the, the idea appears in literature in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the places is Dostoevsky, Brother Karamazov. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. similar idea discussed. I haven't read that particularly Dostoevsky, so I wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. And then she also 
introduction to the story, she talks about an, an American philosopher who mentions this idea, and she was kind of inspired by his writing right. to and write this the, story. This idea of like the scapegoat kind of right. thing. So right. since I was I read the story before, and I was the one that proposed this one, I'll just describe the facts of it pretty, pretty basically. The story is very short, and I think it's also available online if you guys want to go read it. It, took, it takes maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes to read. So it's about a, it's the narrator who seems to be Ursula Le Guin herself, um, but they're not identified. The narrator describing this utopian city of Omalas. And Omalas is beautiful, and they're having a summer festival. And it's a description of that day. And it's beautiful outside, they're having a horse race, everyone's happy. Um, and, but the, but the narrator is very clear to tell you they're not happy because they're simple-minded or they're, you know, basic or anything like that. So they're very complex people and happiness is complex and happiness is something that is complicated feeling. Um, and the, there's a kind of a part in there where Ursula Le Guin goes off about the banality of pain and evil and how like everyone's always obsessed with writing and thinking about pain and evil, but really those things are really boring. Mm. And really, happiness is more interesting. And so she kind of writes about this, and she sort of addresses the reader and says, you know, you don't believe me, but these wonderful things are happening here. And she kind of engages the reader in like a thought experiment where the story is written in such a way that Omalas is a utopia as the reader imagines it. So there's a lot of right. things where she won't give a specific, but she'll say, you know, it could be this way, it could be that way. However, like your fancy goes, basically, however you think of like a perfect place, like a wonderful place to live. Right. So when I was reading it, I was picturing this like beautiful town by by the sea, you know, sunny and kind of uh, like a Greek island beauty kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I right. had a similar, yeah, definitely a similar image. That, and those are the kind of images she draws. You know, she talks about it's not a, there's not a lot of laws. So this is a, a society kind of like you were saying with dystopias and utopias where it's not like it's a forced utopia by the government or something like that. Right. It's, there, there's not a lot of laws. Everyone just kind of gets along and gets happy and everything's great. And then like two thirds of the way through the story, Ursula Le Guin takes a sudden very, a very sharp turn and says, um, I've got one more thing to tell you. Uh, yeah, by the way, there is a basement. <laughs> yeah, by the way, in this wonderful town, in the basement, in the cellar of maybe one of the beautiful buildings, maybe one of the beautiful homes, there is a cellar and there is a room and it is dark. And then she goes on to describe what basically amounts to a broom closet that is like a dark, dank cellar, basement, broom closet thing that has some brooms in it and it's filthy and it has a child and the child is like 10 years old and doesn't really speak. Right. But basically, is suffering. Right. And basically, I think the implication is that the child has been locked in it all all their life. Right. And that's all they do. They just you know they get they have nothing in there, not even like a bathroom or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they just throw it food every now and then, and that's about it. Right. And the child just suffers all the time and doesn't know why. And you know, used to, she describes that the child used to beg to be let out, but no longer really speaks. And the thing about it is everybody in Omalas knows the child exists. Right. Everyone in Omalas. And so they go and see the child at some point in their education. Some of them do, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everyone who's brought up in Omalas is told about the child. And so the only real science fiction aspect of this is the following. The child's suffering is necessary. It's a requirement for the peacefulness of Omalas. 
And it's not really explained beyond that. It's just right. the, the child needs to be suffering. You cannot be kind to the child. You cannot even say a nice word to him or her. We don't know the gender of the child. Right. You cannot say a, a kind word to them. Otherwise, all of this wonderfulness that we have in Omalas will come crashing down. Right. And then the rest of the story is sort of exploring the different ways people react and how, you know, when people learn about it, they're, you know, horrified and they're furious and they want to change or whatever. And then well, the ways... Some people are curious. So, like, some people go mm -hmm. and see it kind of gape as mm -hmm. though it was something kind of a freak, circus freak. Right. Other exactly. people kind of are in denial. They don't really want to talk about it. Right. Some and some people are, are mad about it, and then some people, most people, kind of rationalize it. Right. And they say, well, you know, even if we brought the child out and clothed it and fed it and did all these nice things, you know, it's been down there for so long that uh, you know it does. It's not going to understand that kind of kindness. That, that there's just no point. We're not going to gain anything. It's not really going to appreciate that. And then we're going to, you know, ruin all of society anyway. So they kind of right, rationalize right. it away. The need of the many exceeds mm -hmm. the need of the few, to mm -hmm. quote uh, philosopher Spock. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then the very last bit of the story is what the what Ursula Guin dubs like even more incredible, is that some people, after learning about the child, walk away from Omalas. And they right. just walk out. And just leave. walk into the mountains and go, we have no idea where, and they just walk away from Omalas. And that's it. That's the, that's the story. That's the whole story. Yeah. So, like, in the afterwards, she said, the, of the letters that she gets, uh, many people ask her, where do they go? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, she says, well, she where do they go? Where do, you, where do you think they go? <laughs> well, I assume they go to, like, other cities that are not as happy or pleasant as Omalas, just join actual life, as mm -hmm. opposed to this... Um, protected life right? well i think it depends on what what we view omalas as like if we view omalas as an actual fictional city that exists mm -hmm. then clearly they leave and just go to other cities right which i think is a fine explanation in like a very literal way but i think it's it's pretty obvious that omalas is serving as a metaphor here and actually you came up with a different metaphor than i did for what it means so what's your uh, metaphor well, for, for ever since I first read the story when I was in high school, I've always thought this was a metaphor for capitalism. How so? It's that our society in the West, in the United States, for example, uh, is very much dependent on the suffering of a lot of people, including children, that we're all kind of aware of, and we all kind of ignore a lot. Mm. And, I mean, that includes the suffering of people in our own country and the suffering of people in other countries as well. And... That's, I think, I think the kind of rationalization that she goes through in the story is very realistic because it's kind of like the people of Omelas don't have any recourse. They can't help the child, right? They, nothing they do, they, they can't do anything to help the child even if they wanted to. Right. And so the only real form, the only real way to do anything is to leave Omelas, is to walk away from it. And I think that that's very similar in terms of capitalism generally and specifically to the United States is that, you know, you can't not participate in capitalism. If you live in this country, you have to. It's there's no other option. You could go live in the woods somewhere, but right. there's, there's nothing you can't not. I, I wouldn't uh, use capitalism as the metaphor. I, I, I would think more of like the inequality amongst people, right? So some people have rich and have lots of stuff mm -hmm. and then have to worry about food and, and 
they do depend potentially on work of uh, other people who have mm -hmm. to suffer through the work, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, but in this be. case, there's mm -hmm. just one person. So it's like, if, uh, you know, I, I guess in history, there's always, there's sto always uh, stories of, of, you know, someone who sacrificed themselves to s help uh, their country, the society or whatever, or family, mm -hmm. um, right? And the metaphor I came up with, the, to me, this seems like, you know, when one person suffers for good of everybody else, that's Jesus Christ, right? That's mm -hmm. he suffered to basically make everybody eligible to go to heaven. Mm. Yeah. And I think that was really interesting because I didn't even like that didn't even cross my mind. But I think that is and that kind of brings an interesting aspect to it because, you know, Ursula Le Guin talks about this in terms of a scapegoat, but right. something like you know, Jesus Christ would be considered not a scapegoat so much as a martyr, right? So right. is scapegoat and martyr, are those like kind of two sides of the same coin? Like how related are those things? Mm. Which I think is really interesting. And I don't know. And I think I think all, the great thing about the story of Malas is that you can come up with lots of different metaphors to apply to it. Right. right. And then, you know, it depending on what what it is, you know qu the question of where are the people walking when they leave and can you really walk away from Omalas? you know comes up can you really you know walk away from society you're in when it's it's kind of like questioning the fundamental structure like whatever it is the fundamental structure of whatever it is you're you're using as the metaphor the society you're in whatever it is can you really ever escape that fundamental structure if you disagree with it if you well, have I mean, no ability to change it. It's it's a moral question, right? So you, you know there's a person suffering, and what do you do about it, mm -hmm. right? So one way is to say, well, need of the many exceeds of need of the few, and you, said, and you just go along with it, which is kind of what I guess our society does, although mm -hmm. maybe it's not many. Mm -hmm. Or you can just refuse to play the game and leave, but that still doesn't stop the suffering. Right. Exactly, because at the end of this, no matter what the citizens of Omalas choose, however they rationalize it, however they don't rationalize, and if they leave, the child's still in the basement suffering. Right. I don't know. I think it's really interesting, and I think it's a great thinking also about like the needs of the many and the few, because we know in this story, for for certainty, that there's just one, right? There's just one child. Right. You know, and it's kind of like, okay, there's one child, and there's the whole town, the whole city, you know, that's obviously the many versus the few. But how many how many children would it take? <laughs> right. You know, what, what if there were uh, 10? What if they were 15? You know, is it still, right. at what point in time is it too many to uh, to have this imbalance? Well, there's, there's another thing of this because she picks a child that implies that the sufferer uh, makes no choice, that it's not the choice of the sufferer. Mm -hmm. Like with Jesus Christ, let's say, that was his choice. People who, let's say, so, uh, sacrifice themselves for for the society, like in war, or maybe some doctor who tests the vaccine on himself and mm. dies. You know, those are people who accept the suffering, and it's their choice, as mm. opposed to, and and this it implies that it wasn't the child's choice. It was, I don't know who chose it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no, and I, I think completely agree. Yeah. That makes a difference uh, from moral point of view, right? If, if I choose to do something to save, you know, thousand people or whatever, you know, th those thousand people would uh, 
would be okay with that as opposed to if if they said we can save thousand people if we grab some random child and just torture it for a while mm-hmm. they probably would not be okay with that yeah maybe that's the difference between martyr and scapegoat right right like you're the, right you know, yeah, the martyr, martyr has a choice martyr has has agency and scapegoat doesn't right i mean i think i've i've always found it a very apt metaphor for like like you know the the fact that a lot of like our clothing or the items that we have are made in like right. factories where there's child labor and there are liter- literally children suffering making things for us and it's i think one of the differences is you know in omalas the location of the child is known and the exactly what's happening to the child is known i think one of the things that's difficult about um the global economy is that those are kind of vague concepts that we don't really see Right, and, and occasionally yeah. there's some ex- exposure happens where people are, some reporters go someplace and, and expose some of the conditions there. Mm-hmm. But in those cases, you can also have, you have to look at the person who's, you know, from your point of view, suffering. It may not necessarily be right because let's say a child who works in a factory in, you know, Bangladesh, let's say, mm-hmm. if they didn't work in a the factory, they would starve because the family would not have any other income. Mm-hmm. So... There is a, I guess that's part of the justification that I can tell myself, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, and like part of the justification I can tell myself is there's literally nothing I can do. You know, if I, if I, I mean, the, the best thing a consumer can do in that kind of situation is know what products are made where and then participate in the economies of the, the products that you agree with, basically, right? But it's like when you do it in the individual sense, it does add zilch to affect anything it's it's right. one of those things that needs to be done in mass and actually i wonder if that's one of the questions about omelas is that you know this child could be saved if everyone in omelas or the majority of omelas decided that it was worth it to give up the way their society currently is and, and have a, like a revolution pretty much and right. change the way things were and if they but- did that as a group then it could change things True, but I mean, they have no idea what it might be, and that's certainly, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great unknown. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it, this is why the story is such a good metaphor, because <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it. It's like there's, it's so much easier to just kind of go with the flow and not rock the boat, but there's this big moral question, there's this big moral dilemma, and I think that this is a, a the kind of short story that really highlights that, and it, I think makes it accessible to the reader to think about those kind of things. And I don't think there is an answer, there's not... These right. are very complicated ideas. In terms of utopia, dystopia, you, you know, I guess this asks the question, what price utopia? Yeah. Right. Like what? Because, I mean, I guess you could say for the people of Omelas, this is a utopia, except for that one child for whom right. this is a dystopia. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I guess that kind of gets to our question, too, about utopia and dystopia being two sides of the same coin. And can you really have one without having the other? Right. right. Because something we've seen in a lot of the stories is that there are characters, you know, even back to Brave New World, there are characters for whom the society is a utopia, right. and but there's still people for whom it's a dystopia. Right. You right. know, Jonathan Savage is is not happy with the right. world in Brave New World, but everyone else is. Right. So one uh, little tidbit about the story. Do you know what the name Omelas comes from? Um, I, it was in the, the forward or something like that. It's like from Salem, right? Right. So she said as a writer, she likes to read signs backwards. So 
omelas to it's Salem backwards and then just adding an O. Oh. <laughs> That's cute. That's creative. I like our soliloquy. So do, is this a science fiction story? There's no technology in it. Why is this it's, science it's fiction? It's almost like almost like borderline fantasy i would say right mm -hmm. so it's really it's world world building right you build a world with these crazy rules mm -hmm. and and the afterward when she says about the people writing to her about the story people are upset that that that's the rule and it's like how can you do this but she says i read i wrote the story i constructed the world you know mm -hmm. and that's how it is and what do you think mm -hmm. i think that's the kind of the purpose of the story yeah I, yeah, I think it's with Ursula Gwyn often it's um, her stuff is more less like tech focused and more like human interaction focused. Right. And Anth I, anthropology, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I Although like this, that. Mm -hmm. This is more of, of, of really a moral philosophy question, right? Right, exactly. This is this is like you know, like we talk about in science fiction stories where the authors have like a neat idea and they just want to tell you about that idea and so like right. you know, the person will sit down and read a book or something right. <laughs> within the story. Uh, this is just like, she's just like, this is a neat idea. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you the neat idea. And I think that the same thing kind of applies in um, Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling by Ted right. Chang. Right. So do you want to transition and uh, yeah. you want to talk through uh, the plot of Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling by right. Ted Chang? Right. So this is, uh, so Ted Chang has been writing this collection of short stories. We talked about uh, Story of Your Life, which was in his first collection. Mm -hmm. And this is second collection. It's called Exhalations that came out mm -hmm. last year, I think. And so one of the stories is called Truth, Truth of Fact and Truth of Feeling. And it's like a parallel stories. It's kind of confusing when you first read it because uh, first one kind of happens in the future and the other one sort of happens in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're different characters. And But there's an interesting parallel between the two. So the first story is told by a journalist. I don't think we find out his name. I don't think uh, we do. It, he's a man, and uh, he's a journalist And in the future. And in the future, this is the future where everybody has uh, implants, like Borg-style implants, where they can record, video record their entire life, mm -hmm. basically. And they can review it. You know, you can, you can see it, like, in, in, a, in your vision by just... Um, saying something and one of the things he talks in the beginning is that the kids today they can they don't know how to write anymore and he's mm -hmm. a writer right he's a journalist he says because you know all they just do is kind of essentially talk to this thing that records whatever it is they want to mm -hmm. yeah he, he calls it sub vocalizing which I don't right know so this is like you know when, when you talk to yourself without actually making sounds right oh interesting okay the the whatever the, the hardware and software detects it so he says what happened uh, at one point that everybody did these life logs and they had these piles and piles of video, but it was difficult to search. Mm -hmm. And then some company, which is called Remem, which is like the future Google, <laughs> <laughs> came up with nifty algorithm that will actually search through the stuff so it makes it much, much more convenient to find anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say, remember the time I was in the park and there were three pigeons across on the bench and mm -hmm. the thing will find it the, the video so you can see it right and um and it'll do this automatically like without you asking for it to, it'll just well it, it'll, it'll make make things much much easier to find so you can mm -hmm. as normally you remember stuff it's kind of vaguely except for some maybe important events in your life you can just remember things and 
you don't know the, all the details, but this allows you to actually find the, the clip. Right. So he decided to write a story about, you know, for like some magazine or something about what effect this has on people. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of, that's the first story, the first storyline. Mm -hmm. It's about him kind of exploring that. And, and, and the, re just the reason that he wants to do that is because, and he admits this to the reader, he's concerned about this piece of technology. He thinks that this is going to fundamentally change the way people remember things, because if you always have access to video of everything, then you won't form your own memories, and that it'll mess up and um, interfere with the, the nostalgia you form about memories, the, like, the positive memories you have from your childhood. Like he does, He's kind of against this technology generally. Right, right. Because he says, you know, when you remember old stuff, you know, even uh, something might be very important to you. But when you actually see the video of it, it turns out it wasn't quite like that. Right. And he, and he gives an example of like a couple that gets into a fight about what someone previously said. And then the wife is able to pull up the video and, sh and prove that she was correct. Right. And, but, you know, where does that really get you? What's the point of that? Do right. you want to win? Is it necessary to win every argument? Right. Uh, what, how, what effect does it have on people's relationships? And these are issues that he kind of brings up in the beginning that end up kind of coming back full circle at the end. Right. Um, so that's, that's one part. And the other storyline is uh, about this tribe called Tiv living mm -hmm. in Tiv land. The name character is this kid named Jijinji. Is that how you pronounce, would pronounce it? I would, yeah, I would say Jijinji. That's how I was saying. It's got a lot of J's. <laughs> right. And basically, he was like a kid, and he was talking about when missionaries came first from Europeans came first to his village, mm -hmm. and like a missionary came who actually decided to live in a village, and uh, one of the things this missionary had was books, and uh, and writing. The culture that Jijinji lived in was totally oral culture, so people just told stories. Mm -hmm. So the missionary was trying to spread his own, you know, I guess sounded like a, you know, regular Christian uh, missionary kind of stuff because mm -hmm. I mentioned the Bible. Mm -hmm. Not exactly, he didn't say the Bible, but like some of the stories I think they mentioned seemed very... Uh, yeah, he Bible. mentioned like the yeah. story of Adam and stuff like that, right. yeah. Right, Jijinji was kind of this kid who was into new technology, so he was intrigued by the, by books, essentially, by you know, little pieces of paper with these funny marks on them. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the missionary promised to teach him to read, right? So mm -hmm. he started to teach a bunch of kids in the, in his village, but they lost interest pretty quickly, except for Jijinji, and he kind of stuck stuck to it, mm -hmm. right? Did he also start teaching him writing at the same time? Yeah, he, so he was teaching Jijinji to read and write, and um, they had some interesting conversations in the beginning about like what writing is, because Jijinji wasn't really familiar with it right. beforehand, and the, the idea that you could know like what sounds the symbols make and stuff right and they have a kind of interesting conversation about what a word is right right so he was yeah. jinji was doing some exercise where he was writing and he spaced out his uh, letters kind of evenly without any special breaks between anything mm -hmm. and the guy told him the missionary told him that's wrong you had to spec you know s split out word boundaries and he had a little bit of hard time explaining what words are i think we talked about it the other day, what mm -hmm. is a word, right? How would you explain words to somebody who doesn't write? And right, you know, exactly. I think you had the right idea that you know, when you have a sound that represents one thing, that's a word, usually. Yeah. Uh, 
but well like if you have like if it's, it's easy when you're dealing with like nouns for example like right. if you have a sound or short series of sounds that means an object dog cat chair that kind of stuff right that's easy but you know why is why are the words to and the like why are those words when you get into like particles and things like that well um, i guess you know you you kind of generalize kind of humans tend to do that mm-hmm. when you get a couple of examples you kind of jump to conclusions and and stuff but anyway well, so- I, I like well i like the conversation they have about words because you kind of see the the assumptions the missionary makes and an assumption i think probably a lot of people who read english make and ted chang's writing in english which is that the missionary tries to explain it at first by saying you have to leave spaces because that's where you naturally break when you are, are speaking like you you there's a break there's a pause between words and Jujinji says no there isn't <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> and he's right there isn't we don't as we're speaking on this podcast we don't pause in between words the only reason you're able to hear it and understand where the pauses are is because you've been taught where right. the pauses are yeah i i brought the example of german where they have these very long words mm-hmm. when i was discussing it with mom mm-hmm. but uh so anyway, so this Jijinji kind of starts learning how to write. They have some kind of a annual festival or something where one of the elders of the tribe tells a story. Mm-hmm. Right? So he wasn't a good enough of a scribe yet, but somebody else uh, attends who can write, like an European, and mm-hmm. writes the story down as it's being told by this, uh, by this man and mm-hmm. gives the copy to Jijinji so he can keep it. Right. And he says that you know afterwards when he was reading it, it wasn't quite the same as listening to the speaker. Right. So what happened was the Jinji gets the copy one year, and the next time they do it, the elder tells the same story, and Jinji tries to follow along basically, and it's different. And like the the basic ideas are the same, right. but the, the phrasing is different. And Jinji brings that up to the elder and says, "You told it differently." And the elder's like, "No, I didn't. I told it the same." And right, and no, he reads a sentence see. from the old yeah. from the p- paper. He said, "You said you know there were three elephants, but this time you said there were four elephants. Whatever, whatever it was." Mm-hmm. And and but the guy said, "No, I, I meant the same thing." Right, exactly. And he's like, and he's like, "Why are you getting distracted by paper?" Right, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is great. <laughs> he's like, "You're you're thinking like Europeans. They get distracted by things on paper. Don't don't pay attention to that. So you don't right. need to worry about it." I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting." But yeah, so we kind of start to get this concept of, uh, you know, what is truth exactly. There's there's another bit about uh, that about the interaction between Jujinji and the missionary early on about the um, the reason for writing. So Jujinji thinks for a long time that the reason they write things down is so they can remember them, and he thought it was so weird that the that the missionary would write down his sermons. Right. And read them off the paper because he's like, but he can't even remember his sermon. Like that's so why can't he remember that? And the missionary said, well, it's not, it's not because like, no, 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 he, he, I'm sorry, I got confused. He thinks that the missionary's writing it down so that people in future generations will be able to read it. That's what it is. Jujinji thinks that you write things down when you want people in the future to read it. And Jujinji thinks, you know, it's kind of cocky of him to think that people are going to want read it, right. to read it. Like what's, what's that about? And then the missionary says, no, I'm writing it down so I can remember. So I know like what words I'm going to say. And I know exactly how to say it. And it helps me think. And that's right. the first time that Jujinji is sort of encountering this issue of a new technology that's changing the way people remember. Right. 
interesting. <laughs> right. Where did we come up with that again? <laughs> huh. <laughs> and then we go back to the story about our journalist. Weird. Right. So we go back to journalists who then started interviewing some people uh, at the company that produced the software. And mm -hmm. then he also starts talking about his daughter, Nicole. Mm -hmm. Right. So apparently we find out that he and his wife separated when Nicole was a teenager. He remembers that he had a big fight with Nicole, like a screaming fight shortly after his wife left when Nicole yelled at him and told him, it's all your fault that she left. Mm -hmm. That was very kind of emotional and difficult for him. But he thought that he overcame the, the, the insult, essentially, mm -hmm. and, and was really good father afterwards. And somehow they, they managed you know, when she graduated college, she was at the graduation and she was all nicey-nicey. And, and so he thought he did a good job as, as a single father. Right. It was kind of a turning point for him in his mind that right. he, you know, worked hard and built up over time this relationship. So by the time mm -hmm. she graduated, they had restored their father-daughter bond. Right. According and to his memory. According to his memory. So he said, as part of the this investigation into this new software, he said, well, what he decided to do is to actually kind of probe his own memory. Now, mm -hmm. he said he didn't keep a life log for his entire life, but instead he asked friends and people who had life logs to basically let him access theirs whenever he appeared in their videos so he could see, you know, what what he did and what he appeared like and stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's around this time he asked his daughter as well who allowed him to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so he, he's able to compile like a like kind of Frankenstein together a life log because he, he wasn't wearing one the whole time and he's able to, you know, find find a lot of memories and things like that. Right, and he at one point he became brave enough to review this fight that he remembered, this very mm -hmm. big fight that he had with his daughter. And mm -hmm. when he saw the video, that's from her point of view, it turned mm -hmm. out that it wasn't she who screamed, you know, it's all your fault. It was he who screamed at her. Mm -hmm. It was all your fault. Then she, you know, ran away and for a while and stuff. And uh, and he and was horrified. He was he, hor she... he was just totally flabbergasted by that because right. he thought she had she had um, tampered with the video and like made a fake video. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And it took him a while to realize that he had just very seriously misremembered a moment that he thought was pivotal in his life. Right. And then we go, we bounce back and forth to Jujinji. Right. So in Jujinji, there's uh, one other interesting thing that they talk about. So he talks about his old, the old man that he kind of helps, uh, Sabe. Mm -hmm. Right. So Jujinji, uh, because he learned to write, he becomes a scribe. And they offer them to send him a scribe of some other village. But the Sabe says, no, 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 I want, you know, I, I prefer to have Jujinji because I can trust him to what he mm -hmm. writes. Because you know, the papers mean, you know, they, they kind of imply that what, what can be written, it could be wrong. And then the Europeans will believe the paper, not the actual. Right. So, right. so he wants someone from within the village. Right. So one of the things that Sabe does is he's uh, like a judge. Mm -hmm. You must have enjoyed that part. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> where he basically settles disputes. And uh, they, they give an example of one where there's a... Um, man who basically bought his wife, bought a wife, and uh, she turned out bad, and he wanted his money back. Mm -hmm. Right. She basically left him. Right. And she and, wouldn't go back to him. And right. the dispute was over how much had been originally paid. Right. And 
the two parties to the dispute, you know, the family of the woman and then the left husband said different amounts. And um, the husband was able to produce a witness who swore an oath to tell the truth and said, you know, no, it was this higher amount that he did pay. And that's that's what was ordered. And this is kind of when we get introduced to these, I forget the vocabulary words that they use, but the two concepts of truth, the two different kinds of truth that I found really interesting. So it's like, because the Jijinji is explaining the story of what happened to the missionary. And the missionary says, well, the two parties to the dispute should have been also sworn under oath to tell the truth, because what's the point if you're not all telling the truth? And Jijinji's like, well, no, everybody was telling the truth, but there's two different words for truth. Right, the two different truths. And I think the title Mm -hmm. of the story kind of gives you the the idea, right? Truth of fact, truth of feeling, exactly. So there's like one kind of truth that is the actual accurate, like what factually occurred. And then there's the other kind of truth, which is what's right to the individual. Right. What the one person thinks is right. Right, right. And so Jujinji said, you know, neither of the parties was lying, even though one was factually correct. You know, they were both telling, basically, you know, saying their truths, which I think is really interesting and is is probably very related to what I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. But it's like a really, it's like a really interesting way to think about truth, because I think that is correct. You know, it's definitely, it's definitely a, a more nuanced way to think about truth, I think. Right, and this is what, now we flip back to the other story of the poor journalist mm-hmm. and his daughter. Truth of fact was that he yelled at her, but mm-hmm. truth of feeling was from his point of view, he somehow believed that it was she who yelled at him. Mm-hmm. And he kind of lived his life according to that memory mm-hmm. until he discovered that it was wrong. So I think it, it kind of is like, you know, he, it, you know, regardless of what it what was true, he felt a certain way. And, you, you know, your feelings right. are your feelings, kind of, regardless of if they're right. based in truth or not. You know, they're, your, your feelings are true, whether or not they're... That's right, right. So that's, yeah, they're justifiable. Yeah. Yeah, so he meets with his daughter. And right, he so explains. he meets with her and he tries to explain mm-hmm. to her and he apologizes and she tells him. He says, you know, I thought we kind of patched everything over by the time you graduated from college. She says, yeah, that's because I spent so much time in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And she and she basically calls him out, and he's like, "I'm trying to apologize." And she's like, "Yeah, everything's always about you, huh?" Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and she kind of is like, you know, I'm I'm not mad at you anymore. Like I I forgive you, etc. But you know, be more cognizant of how you actually are, and which is like you know quite a wake up call for him. And that he the fact that he wasn't being cognizant in how he actually was, his you know the the emotions are kind of a control. And then I think the we, so the the story parallel then goes back to Jijinji with Jijinji with the um, big dispute among the tribes. Right. So in, Jij, in Jijinji's world, in Tivland, what the Europeans as they're coming in, they want to reorganize the the structure of the tribes. They don't want to deal with like hundred tribes. They want them to kind of group themselves into prefectures or whatever. Yeah. And the question is, which tribe should go with whom? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Sabe says, well, we should go with this tribe because so-and-so is a son of so-and-so. And, yeah, well, uh, oh gosh, what were the names? Some, um, Kwan, um, Kwande was the name of somebody, Jachir. I think Kwande and Jachir were the two different. Yeah, so the, I, basically they're tracing it by lineage. They're saying our right. tribe's lineage traces back to person A, and person A was the son of this tribe in the east, so we should 
be with the Eastern tribe. Right. But then some of the members of Jijinji's tribe said, no, no, our lineage traces back to this tribe in the West. Right. And so we should go with them. And so they're using this kind of genetic tie, this familial tie right. to justify the two arguments. So Jijinji says, oh, wait a second. I bet you Europeans wrote some stuff down when they first arrived here. So he takes the trip to some city mm-hmm. far away to visit the archives mm-hmm. and try to see if he can find something. And mm-hmm. now I don't even remember what he finds. So he goes with the missionary to the archives and they do find notes that were written by the Europeans about 40 or 50 years before that do note that the tribe Jijinji is part of uh, used to be reported as being related to the Western tribe. Right. So the people that Sabe disagrees with are actually correct right? in terms of who they're related to. So right. Jijinji gets all excited. He gets a copy of this paper. He brings it back and he shows it to Sabe. And Sabe says, basically, put that away. We don't need that here. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't listen to some paper. <laughs> right. And... And Jijinji's like, but it's it's the truth. It's you know we're that's who we're related to, and that's who we should be with. And Sabe's like, it's wrong, right? And he's like, he's like, that's fake news, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Jijinji's like, but but it's but it's not. And Sabe's basically like, look, you're valuing what the paper says over what what we say, yeah. what we say, what we know, and what's good for us. And what's good for us is to be part of the Eastern tribe, and that's. That's our truth. We're living our truth right now. Right. And it ends with Jijinji realizing... Ripping the paper or, or getting rid of it or something. Yeah. Right. He kind of realizes that he's been thinking too much like a European and putting too much faith in this writing stuff when really what matters is less what matters is truth of fact, but what matters is truth of feeling and right. his, his tribe. And he like says that he'll continue to write as a scribe and everything like that because that's his job but for his like he's going to stop writing in like his personal journals or in his free time because it's it's changing the way that he's thinking and he doesn't like it and he says he'll up he'll use it as fire kindling the papers right and that's how jujinji's stories end and then so then the we get a little bit more of the journalist and the journalist just basically says so i've realized that I done messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm life logging all the time and I'm making my life log public so everyone can see it. So you can all let me know if I'm crazy and if I'm, you know, acting in ways that I don't realize. And please let me know if I'm wrong in my understanding of myself. And he also talks about like, so this piece is written by him, including the bits about Jijinji. Right. So he kind of talks about how he picked that story to uh, accompany Oh, that's his right, story. yes. That's right. Yeah. And that's kind of where it leads off. Right. So I found the story interesting just because of the, the you know, the peril of, is obvious, right? You, you have mm-hmm. new technology being introduced into a culture and what happens. And right. uh, in case of uh, Jijinji and the Tiv, they kind of use it, but they kind of stick to their own ways, at least to begin, to begin with. But you can see what effect it has on Jijinji, right? You mm-hmm. really change the way you think. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, but he kind of rejects it in the end, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the journalist kind of accepts it. Mm-hmm. So here's a new technology that changes how you perceive yourself and how you think. The fact that you can so precisely search 
and find out what happened exactly in your on your own life as mm -hmm. uh, I guess it would change the way you you think and act I mean I, I wonder especially if you make your your life log public right mm -hmm. I mean there there's stuff that we do where where we don't want people to to know when I go and steal the ice cream or something <laughs> <laughs> It's sort of interesting because the whole time I was reading the story, you know, I was getting that the author was very concerned with this technology, that the, the narrator was right. concerned with this technology. And I'm just like not concerned with that kind of technology. And I was, I was reading the different examples because he was basically trying to sell us on like, you know, oh, it'll change the way you remember things. It'll change the way you feel about your memories. It'll change the way you feel about people and the way you feel about events. And I'm like, I really don't think it would because even when, and I have been in this circumstance, you can have video evidence that something happened and people can still have all their own feelings about it. Right. And really be not at all swayed by video evidence. I mean, I, I, I work criminal cases and there's all kinds of evidence that happens all the time, video and otherwise, that's very damning or very exculpatory whatever and people just dance around it and make it work in their brains people right. are not evidence driven we're not truth of facts driven we're <laughs> truth of feeling driven that's right <laughs> and i just don't think it would change that much i think you know for myself like he was describing you know if you had video from the moment you were born uh from your point of view how could you ever have like good memories of your childhood if you could really go back and watch it and I'm like, I think you can have both. I think you can have, because I have like plenty of videos from when I was a kid. You want right. to take videos of me. And I, I can watch the videos and see the videos, but I also remember the events themselves, if I do, if I was old enough to, mm -hmm. and have all my own memories and feelings about the memories. And so I just don't think that, I, I mean, and maybe it's a generational thing or something, but I don't think that would particularly disturb me, those videos. I know that my job would be a lot easier, easier if everything was recorded because there wouldn't be questions about who committed what crime so much, but there honestly still would be, because there's been cases where my clients may or may not, may, maybe or maybe not, were caught on video doing the thing that they were accused of, right? and still denied it. So, you know, well, it's like, the, I, don't, I just don't think it's that, I don't think it's that determinative. So I was, um, if you look at, um, like some of the Me Too movement cases, mm. it's, some of it is precisely this, right? So, mm -hmm. like when I was uh, the Kavanaugh case, right? We could imagine where, you know, what he did to him appeared like a trivial thing, mm -hmm. uh, and nothing really happened because, you know, from his point of view, nothing really happened. Mm -hmm. But to the woman, uh, the experience of the nothing really happened was actually quite traumatic, mm -hmm. right? and she remembers it differently, and they're both in, in, in a way correct, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big problems with he said, she said kind of criminal right. cases is that, you know, it, it, there's a, and there's a lot of our law is based in how the victim feels. You know, you can commit an armed robbery without being armed because if the victim thinks you're armed, right. it's, that's an armed robbery. Right. It, you don't have to actually have a gun for the victim to think you do. And the question is, is it reasonable? Do they reasonably think that you have it? it has nothing to do with the truth of fact. It has to do with the truth of feeling. So I was talking to mom about it, and mm. she feels very strongly that she can remember everything correctly. <laughs> and part of the reason is that she, let's say some people who she grew up with were gaslighters, people who lied all the time. Mm. Yeah. And 
she would she would get into arguments later in her life where say, you know somebody would say well when you were little we did this 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 and he says not at all we never did that that's incorrect mm-hmm. uh, you're just making it up and uh, it's you know you can make up if if you are a gaslighter you can make up an entire world really yeah. right mm-hmm. uh, with video actually it's going in, in the near future there's going to be lots of problems because video can be faked there there are you know, software tools that let you do all kinds of crazy video fakes. Yeah. And it's not easy to tell when something was fake or not. So that's something we're going to have to deal with um, in the in not too distant future. Yeah. And I mean, you also have the problem of the video might be real, but it's still being interpreted by the human eye. And, you know, if, like when it comes to like identity of people on video and stuff like that, if you have someone who just kind of looks like other people and like there's lots of us. So there's people out there that look like us. We all kind of look the same, more or less. So, you know, you get you run into problems like that where you still have the fallibility of the human eye and the human mind. Right. Uh, when right. dealing with that kind of stuff. So it's certainly not like a be-all, end-all. I don't know, I just didn't, I didn't, like, he was, a lot of the stories spent kind of philosophizing about the, the terribleness that this remem technology could bring. But none of it struck me as particularly terrible. It just struck me as... I, I actually didn't didn't think it would change much. Yeah, I mean, we don't think of writing as being a terrible technology. No, not at all. It's right? exceptionally useful, right? And so, I mean, that's that's really the interesting thing. So Ted Chang does this thing where, and he did this in the story of your life as well, where he kind of bounces back and forth each chapter or chapter section. I guess this is a short story uh, between the two different stories, and it's done for a very clear purpose, which is to parallel the two things and to make right. you compare the two right. things and. I think it's done brilliantly here in terms of um, paralleling the writing and the remem technology, or really any new technology, right. making and making the reader really think about the fact that writing is a technology. Right. Yeah, we don't think right. of it as technology. Because every human culture has had speech, but not every human culture has had writing. There's uh, some historical evidence. Uh, some people claim that writing and the way that we have it, where you have symbols representing sounds, was mm-hmm. only invented once. Oh, really? So we have pictographs like hieroglyphics, and there's some pictographs like among American Indians, the Incas, and mm-hmm. the Maya. But the writing where a symbol represents just a part of a, sa- a sound mm-hmm. was invented just once, and then it just spread. Mm. It's really interesting, too, to look at different languages and their alphabets. So I, I mean, I studied Japanese when I was in college, and Japanese alphabets, phonetic alphabets, are hiragana and katakana, mm-hmm. and they oh gosh, they have forty six symbols per, and they um, and so so like their sounds, for example, would would be combinations of letters for English. So instead of like, you know, having a like a S and an A as two separate things that you can just combine to make the sound sa, mm-hmm. that they, they have one symbol that is SA, you know, and one symbol that is SE, and one symbol that is SO, and, you know, the kind of pairing the consonants with the vowels. And so there's a lot more of them, but it's kind of interesting to think of the fact that you know, you can't you don't have a Japanese word that ends in s because there is no single s. Everything's paired with a every s is paired with a vowel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You so. also said at, when we talked about this before that when mm-hmm. you studied Russian, you had harder time telling where words start and end in Russian than in Japanese. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'm surprised. Well, I mean, Russian. So Japanese is actually like. It's, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's it's very regular. 
the structures of the sentences are regular. Like the, your verbs are going to be at the end of the sentence. Your nouns are going to be marked by certain uh, particles and things like that. And there's like plenty of diversity in the language, of course, but it's like very consistent. The words, I don't know, to, to me at least in Japanese, the words, the individual words sound like words. And so I was, I was, it was much easier for me. Russian, I only studied for a year and I was really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a lot of trouble with It's a family with Russian. tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of trouble with Russian, though I can still read Cyrillic, I think. I like the Cyrillic alphabet, it was neat. But Russian was just, I, I had a lot of trouble telling when words started and stopped. Japanese also is like, you, you pronounce the word like it looks. You don't, it's not like, you know, something silent, really. There's very little of that, which is nice. Russian had all kinds of weird stuff with spelling. So, utopia or dystopia and why? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's think first about Jujinji. Is Jujinji in a utopia or dystopia? Hard to say, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you, you could look at, I guess you could look at both ways, right? The one way is mm -hmm. that this new technology comes in and it's destroying the culture. You know, people used to be able to tell stories and mm -hmm. have, you know, epic poems and whatever that would remember and perform. And it's observing somebody tell a story is quite different than from reading it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you are able to write the story down, many more people can be reached that way, I guess. And people mm -hmm. can remember, people can, you know, read it after you're gone, after the author is gone. So... Mm -hmm. I don't know, is that dystopian or utopian? So there's some destruction and there's some creation of something new. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, I think one of the things about the story is that we don't really know, we don't really get a lot, a lot of characterization of any of the people in it. So it's kind of hard to know how they feel about it. And like, I guess we don't know much more about Jujinji's life except for this introduction of the technology. And same thing with the author, we don't know too much more. I think for him was slightly dystopian because he, he kind of undermined his self-image, I guess. Mm -hmm. right? Well, I think for the author, it definitely seems to be dystopian. Um, for the narrator, I, mean, I keep saying author, I mean the narrator. It seems right. to be dystopian because he's basically now created an imposed surveillance state on himself. Right. right? Like he his his reaction to realizing that the technology has shown that something is wrong, that in his perception was to over-embrace the technology. And now, like you were saying before, like pr probably is acting differently because he knows people are watching. Because right. people act differently when you watch them. Yeah. Whereas Jijinji kind of, in the opposite way, realized that the technology was doing a bad, what he was considering a bad thing and that therefore rejected it. Right. I wonder if that's to a point too, because you know we as the reader can't really have feelings about remam because it doesn't exist. Right. But we clearly, as the reader reading a story <laughs> that's written, right. have feelings about writing and looking at Jujinji and thinking like when when the text said that Jujinji wouldn't be writing as much in his free time, I felt sad about that. I was like, oh, that's unfortunate because writing is such a wonderful thing. Writing is so creative and and intellectual and it engages your mind and increases your creativity it's fantastic and i felt bad that this character would reject that and but then on the flip side i felt weird that the journalists would over embrace remem right so i think that probably is a parallel that's there for a purpose Right. The yeah. fact the the fact that we're I mean we're all used to writing and expect writing and reading to be part of our lives. Right. So we think it's good. 
Yeah, and the, well, the other thing that I, I think we said at the beginning that the these stories differ from some of the other utopias and dystopias we've read is that it's technology that makes the that is the the deciding element, right? There is mm -hmm. no government forcing you to do this or that. It's just new technology appears mm -hmm. and it's changing things. As yeah, far as uh, mm -hmm. what about the Omelas story? Yeah, I was just trying to think if they're really. They're, you know, they're quite different. I think the, the similarities are both that both stories are short. Both stories kind of deal with one idea, which is right. Omelas just basically says, "Look, look what a long, wonderful utopia! Wouldn't you want to live here? Come Looks visit like this you. basement." <laughs> <laughs> Don't you want to live here? But do you really? <laughs> right. It's yeah, almost no. like a Twilight Zone episode, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that I think truth of fact, truth of feeling has a lot of similarities to Omelas in that. Ted Chang and Ursula Le Guin both kind of spend a good amount of the tech space sort of just pontificating about their thoughts on life. <laughs> and then just like, this is great. This is how people are. Let me tell you about the human condition. I'm going to put a very thin story together around it so I can write you an essay about the meaning of goodness. You know, like that's kind of what both of them came across as. And I think they're both asking similar questions, right? Like, you know, is this worth it? Right. You know, is guess. it worth it right. to have the child in the basement for the rest of it? Is it worth it for everyone to do this? Right. Is it worth it to have writing and to lose a culture? To really, to lose, like you were saying, to destroy a whole culture with just this one thing. Is it worth it to have Remem and these life logs? Good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer either. <laughs> I think it's worth it to have writing. I think I can... I, can, I certainly from, like writing, yes. From my unbiased point of view as a as a reader and writer of the English language, I think it's a good thing. <laughs> but writing is uh, an interesting process. You know, it, it makes you think differently than just speaking, right? Nobody has, everybody can speak and speak in mm -hmm. sentence and communicate. Writing is a little bit harder. It's like a different, you have to twist your mind into a different direction. Mm -hmm. Well, also there's something interesting in truth of fact, truth of feeling. There's a bit in there that reminded me of a story of your life. So he, in the very beginning, when he's talking about the fact that his daughter doesn't write, like with paper anymore, she uses this technology to kind of formulate her thoughts into a written sentence. Mm -hmm. That reminded me a lot of kind of the aliens from A Story of Your Life, where they could create like a sentence um, as like a single concept simultaneously. Right. And I think that's very interesting because both for speech and writing, but I think it comes across more so when you're writing, there, there is a kind of thing where you have an idea and like you and your brain can understand that idea as a whole concept at once. But to explain it, you have to take it and put it into a, like a linear structure for someone to be able to read. And I think that is a very interesting mental process and one of the things that makes writing difficult because you, know, you sit down to write an essay or a brief or a story or something like that and you know what you want to say. Right. But where do you start? Right. You know, if you want to explain... How, if you want to explain, yeah, I mean, I've been helping a lot of my coworkers recently over the phone with their computers. I've been in a lot of telephonic tech support. Right. <laughs> and it's like you want to explain to someone, you know, my coworker calls me and says, my, my tablet won't start. I don't know what's wrong. The light's not on. And in my brain, there's like 10 different things that pop up. But I have to, to right. you know, go, okay, is it plugged in? Right. All right. right. Are you sure? <laughs> you know, and, and walk through it in a linear fashion to communicate because our communication can't be instantaneous. Right. I've always I've always found that to be an interesting process of writing 
and something that Ted Chiang seems to hit on and see, he seems to be interested in as well in terms of writing a linear time and you know what is it what does it mean to write something if you if you know if I was able to sit down and just think of stuff and the technology in my brain put it into a paragraph did I write that paragraph is is that much different than me sitting at the keyboard and typing it what's more interesting with what I find fascinating about writing just observing some writers is that sometimes things appear in the writing that the writer did not know they were there mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> yeah exactly characters just come to life or basically come out because they insisted on being in the writing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and i think that kind of goes to what the missionary was saying to jujinji was that writing helps him think right you know sometimes you're writing something and you don't you don't quite know how to explain it so you just kind of start to and you discover things as you do that so i I do think it's fascinating so to wrap up so next time we will uh, just kind of summarize our various dystopias utopias and kind of compare them contrast uh, Mm -hmm. consider if 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 anyone's listened to our aliens aliens everywhere podcast it'll be in the same vein only it'll be what dystopias dystopias everywhere (laughs) (laughs) so we'll go back over the the books and do a sort of comparative literature kind of thing which is my favorite kind of thing (laughs) and then our next big project idea is a rather a rather long novel do you want to explain what we're going to read next right so next after that we're going to read dune frank herbert's dune now uh, i think both of us read it in the past Mm -hmm. and there's a movie coming out um i'm not sure it's going to be out this summer or, or when. I think it's like maybe the we should call this the classic uh, series of, of, of podcasts or something. Where we pick a couple mm-hmm. of classic science fiction novels. And uh, Dune certainly was classic. Yes. I haven't read Dune since I was, I think, 13 or 14 years old. Um, yeah, I read it a long time ago. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I played the video game. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. There were some bad movies made from it, so yeah, um, I remember those. <laughs> uh, but this this movie coming out looks kind of interesting. It might be nice to read the book and and watch the movie again. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea when that movie is? Is it coming out soon or? Uh, I thought it was this summer, but I'm not sure. Okay, I'll have to start reading Dune sooner than the day before we podcast. Um, yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the short stories because I started them yesterday and I finished them. <laughs> This you should read all of Exhalations. So it's it's all those stories are excellent. This is Ted mm-hmm. Chang. So yeah, no, I love his writing. I mean, a story of your life is probably one of my favorite stories that we've done. Mm-hmm. That and Solaris. Who would have thought? Really? I I really like Solaris. Yeah, I yeah. really do. Yeah, I know. Weird. <laughs> so um, okay, so that's it for um, our dystopia utopias. Next time we'll be doing the comparison of all of them. And then we'll be moving on to Dune and, I guess, other classics. Yeah. Um, but I think that's everything for today. So yeah. thank you guys for joining us again here at History in Reverse. And uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Let me open the doc so I can read the correct names. What's the name of our podcast? History in Reverse. History in Reverse. (laughs) (laughs) 
I always mess it up, but I'm going to try not to. I'm really going to try not to. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I say? Hello, welcome to History Universe, a popular science fiction podcast. Today we're talking about yada yada. Yeah. Okay.